Thank you for tuning in this morning to the worship broadcast of Bowglade Alliance Church. Bowglade Alliance Church is located at 425 East Canal Street North in Bowglade uh, with live worship services every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information, visit us online at www.bowgladealliance.org. Now let's join Pastor Kevin for this morning's message. This might sting, but I promise that was not my intention. Our passage today... It's not about you, but it certainly has significance for you. I think that too often we tend to think of the Bible in rather simplistic terms. It's God's love letter to us. It's our instruction manual for life and godliness. I've been to many Bible studies in my day where the question is asked, what does this passage mean to you? And far too often I've seen Christians appropriate things for themselves that Jesus spoke specifically to the apostles or to others in his day, not to us. The Bible has plenty to say to us. It has plenty to say to us today. It is important to note that it's a compilation of historical texts that recount events that took place in time and space in human history to specific people and specific groups of people. And we were not there. Our passage today isn't about you, but it certainly does have significance for you. Well, I've largely given up tuning into the news these days, as several of you probably have as well, at least to the extent that I did years ago. There are things that take place in our world that are not about us, but yet have significance for us. When we consider some of the major Supreme Court cases that have been heard over the years, we ultimately see human beings, specific human beings, in conflict over situations and events that occurred in their lives. Their stories are not about us. However, the Supreme Court rulings that come about as a result set precedent, and that precedent does affect us. When my brother and I were growing up, I would often pay close attention when my brother got into trouble. Not just the gloat, but I had other reasons. After all, my brother and I weren't all that different, and the foolish things that he did, I often did as well. So when my brother got into trouble, I wanted to know how my mother would punish him for that particular offense, so that if I got caught, I would likely get the same punishment and I would know what to expect. His foolish actions and his punishment, they weren't about me but they certainly had significance for me. Likewise, when my mother sacrificed something for my brother, or stood up for my brother, or cared for my brother when he was injured or when he was sick, these moments weren't about me. However, they held significance for me because they told me things about my mother. They painted a picture of her character. They demonstrated the love that she had for her children. And as one of her children, you'd better believe that there was something for me to take away from these moments when I got to peer into her and my brother's story. Our passage today isn't about you, but it certainly has significance for you because what we see in our text today is this. The same God who loves us demonstrates his faithful love to the Jews in the first century that we're going to read about. The same God who has invited us into his new covenant keeps the covenants that he has made with his people throughout history. 
The same God whose promises we believe demonstrates his faithfulness to his promises. And the same God who we thank for offering forgiveness and restoration when we fail him demonstrates that this is his very nature. Now, last week, I argued that the healing of the lame beggar was a sign. It demonstrated the truth of the gospel, which was being preached by the apostles. Who was it a sign to? It was a sign to the Jews. It was a sign to the people of Israel, God's covenant people. And in our passage today, we get to see this a little more clearly. And again, while we will rightly understand this as God's engagement with the first century Jews who were at the temple as these things unfolded, we will certainly see their significance for us today as well as God's people. So if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Acts chapter 3. We're going to pick up right from where we left off last week, and so we'll be in Acts 3 starting in verse 11. And we're going to take this a little piece at a time here so that we can understand all that is going on. And so Acts 3, starting in verse 11, says, While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Now it might be easy to misunderstand first century Jewish disposition toward miracles, and so let me talk a few minutes about this. After all, we read through the Bible, right, from Genesis to Revelation, and we see profound and amazing things being done by God and by his agents. And here, we read of people who lived during the time of Jesus, during the time of the apostles. And it might be easy for us to think that miracles and signs were just commonplace in their culture. But the fact of the matter is this just isn't true. Miracles and signs would have amazed them in much the same way that they would amaze us today if we saw someone perform such a wonder in our midst. And this was certainly true for Jesus also during his earthly ministry. One of the reasons he gathered such large crowds around him was because people desired to see something amazing, something that they had never seen before. In fact, Jesus would often have to use hyperbole or parables or hard teaching to separate out the true followers for those who just desired to see a spectacle. If miracles and signs were commonplace in Jesus' day, the crowds may not have been so large. And of course, the impact of his miracles to confirm his messages might have been hindered. Miracles and signs were rare, even though the Jews certainly would have known the history of God's mighty works among their ancestors, and perhaps even would have heard about Jesus' miracles. So when a man who has been lame since birth, who everyone knew, who had been placed at one of the gates leading up to the temple every single day to beg, when this man is miraculously healed, people are understandably and expectedly amazed at what has taken place. A few weeks ago, we read about the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. I mentioned that the events required interpretation, right? All events, just like texts, events require interpretation. Until someone explains what has happened and why, events don't seem to make a whole lot of sense 
even if they're amazing. Further, people tend to come to the wrong conclusions until an interpretation is presented. For instance, if I told you to clap your hands, and when you did, the lights went out, and then I told you to clap your hands again, and you did, and the lights went back on, you might conclude that your clapping is in some way affecting the lights. However, the truth might be that I had someone staged by the light switch to flip the lights on and off at my prompting. Until we have a correct interpretation of the events, we can easily jump to the wrong conclusions. And in our text today, it appears that the gathering crowds were, begin were beginning to come to the wrong conclusions about what had just happened with the healing of this man. This lame beggar's healing was such a dramatic event that our text says that people were running to the place where they were, where the apostles were and where this man was. They wanted to see what was going on, and they were quickly starting to form some conclusions about what had happened. And Peter asked, why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? So much like the crowds that had flocked to Jesus to see amazing things, people were now gathering around the apostles, thinking that they somehow possessed some amazing power to do extraordinary things. Others credited their ability to perform this miracle to their godliness. Maybe a new prophet was in town. Maybe a new messianic contender. Whatever the conclusions people were coming to, Peter had to provide the right interpretation. It wasn't about him, and it wasn't about John who was with him. It wasn't even about this man that was healed. We pick up in our text in verse 13. It says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one, and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Again, it wasn't about Peter or John or the lame beggar who had been healed. It was about Jesus. This miraculous healing, this sign, now afforded the apostles the opportunity to set the record straight in regard to Jesus. This miracle certainly was the work of the God of Israel. However, the Israelites had missed the larger miraculous work that the God of Israel had accomplished in their midst, the arrival of the long-awaited Messiah. They didn't just fail to recognize him. They had actually handed him over to the Romans to be killed. They had shouted for his blood, even when Pilate tried to release him. They even chose the insurrectionist Barabbas to be released to them instead of Jesus when Pilate was willing to let one of them go. And they didn't just betray a man to his fate. They didn't even just betray the Messiah to his fate. But there was something far more significant about Jesus. He was the divine Son of God. Peter says this in our text. He says, you disowned the holy and righteous one. He says this speaking of Jesus. These are terms used to speak of God alone. And here, Peter is ascribing these terms to Jesus. He goes further and says, you killed the author of life. Who's the author of life but God alone? 
but yet we see Jesus spoken of in this way, not just here, but in multiple places throughout the New Testament. Let me just recount these quickly to you. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Catch this. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Also talking about Jesus, Colossians 1, 15 through 16. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And lastly, Hebrews 1, 1 to 2. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets, at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. Man, they really did kill the author of life. Now, I want to pause for a moment and remember back to why Jesus was condemned by the religious leaders. What, what was the motivation behind this? What was, the, what was the charge that was brought against him? And so we read about Jesus' hearing before the chief priests uh, and the Sanhedrin after his arrest. And I'm going to read from Mark 14. Mark 14, 60 through 65 says this. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy! And the guards took him and beat him. So why was Jesus turned over to the Romans? On the charge of blasphemy. If Jesus was a blasphemer, then according to the law of Moses, he was worthy of death. So if he was a blasphemer, then according to the law, the Jews did the right thing. This is what was required by God's law. And so if Jesus was a blasphemer, then they did the right thing. But if Jesus was who he said he was, if he was the Messiah, if he was the Son of God, then they were absolutely, then they were absolutely wrong to condemn Jesus to death. In fact, they themselves would have profaned the Holy One of Israel and were themselves guilty of blasphemy. Blasphemy. And at this moment, as Peter's addressing the crowd, many of whom were in Jerusalem and a party to the events of Jesus' condemnation, things were getting rather uncomfortable, if you can imagine. What if what Peter was saying was true? What if they not only condemned an innocent man, but condemn the Messiah, even God himself. And if that wasn't bad enough, then Peter twisted the knife. In verse, thir- verse 16, it says this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. 
Wow. And so here's the confirmation that they were wrong. Here's the confirmation that Jesus wasn't blaspheming, that in fact he was who he said he was. How can they know if, Peter was, if what Peter was saying here was true concerning Jesus? This man, this lame beggar, this verified miracle, this sign was performed in Jesus' name. The God of Israel verified the apostles' claims by allowing a miraculous sign in Jesus' name. By Jesus, this man was healed. What do you do with that? If you were a Jew in Jerusalem during these times, if your religious leaders condemned this Jesus as a blasphemer and turned him over to the Romans, and you found yourself along with them and, and along with the crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And then you find out that this man that you condemned also was in fact the Messiah. What would you do? What would you be feeling right about now? What would you be afraid the repercussions might be? And let's face it, God would certainly have been in his right to condemn them all. Hey, let's face it, God would certainly be in his right to condemn everyone, including us. After all, it was all of our sin that made Jesus' death necessary. How many times after coming to faith in Christ have we betrayed him with sin, rebellion, complacency, apathy? But what we have experienced in our lives, we also see demonstrated here, that God is merciful. And so having laid their sin bare, Peter goes on in verse 17. He says, Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. This past week, someone asked me about Jesus' prayer on the cross. You know the one. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, Peter affirms this sentiment from top to bottom right here. The religious leaders were blind to the truth that was right in front of them. And the crowds that agreed with their decision were blind to the truth that was right in front of them. Peter says they acted in ignorance. Further, Peter made it clear that their ignorance didn't derail God's plan, but that this was always God's plan. Jesus had to die. He had to die so that atonement could be made for sins. In fact, foreshadowing his death at his last meal with his disciples, Jesus himself said this in Matthew 26, 28. He said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Paul recounts the gospel also to the Corinthians by saying that the Christ died for, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And this is what God spoke of long ago through the prophets. The Messiah must suffer to bring about salvation, to bring about the forgiveness of sins. Despite the grievousness of the sins committed against Jesus, God offers complete forgiveness and reconciliation. Peter says, repent then and turn to God that your sins may be wiped out. And finding forgiveness for sins committed against Jesus is a great blessing. 
Even more, finding forgiveness for all sins is an even bigger blessing. However, God's blessings in Jesus are even more than forgiveness. Although that is certainly a wonderful blessing. So what do I mean by even more than forgiveness? The Jews of this time period largely understood the bigger picture. That the world was more than just the here and now. An abundance of Jewish literature from this time period demonstrates their deep longing for the end times. For God himself to visit the earth, to judge the nations, to set up his permanent dwelling place on the earth, and to reign in peace. And here, Peter references that deep hope. We see in verses 19 through 21. He says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and catch this, and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. This same Jesus who came, died, rose, and ascended will come again to validate the hopes of the Jewish people. That God will come and reign and dwell among his people in a way that humanity hasn't experienced since the time of the fall. Again, the Jewish people had this hope, but the central figure who God would use to usher in this time was largely unidentified. There was so much messianic expectation during this this time period of Jewish history, but they had not yet identified the Messiah. And now Peter is demonstrating that Jesus is that Messiah. And while the Jews were not ready for him at his first coming, he urges them to repent and turn to God and Jesus so that they will be ready for his second coming, which will occur at the appointed time. Because while the Jews were certainly God's covenant people, What they did with the Messiah determined who continued to be a part of God's covenant people. We see this in verses 22 through 26. He says, For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. Indeed, beginning with Samuel, all the prophets who have spoken have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. It needs to be stated, by the way, unequivocally stated that God does not break his promises. God does not go back on his word. So the promises that God made to Abraham, which he reaffirmed to Isaac and to Jacob, God will forever keep. As I mentioned last week, God did not give up on the Jews when Jesus came. He did not forsake the old and start something new. However, the fact remains that for a Jewish person to continue to be a part of Israel, part of God's covenant people, part of the faithful remnant that we see referred to in the Old Testament, referred to in the literature of the Second Temple period, and also in the New Testament. They must listen to the prophet, the prophet like Moses that the Lord will raise up. And so the passage that Peter quotes here is from Deuteronomy 18, when Moses himself mentions that God will bless the nation by raising up a prophet like him. And at the end of Deuteronomy, 
we see that no such prophet had yet arisen. Catch the description of what Israel was expecting. This is from Deuteronomy 34, verses 10 through 12. It says, Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Let's think about this text for a minute. Now, Moses didn't write these verses, right? According to Deuteronomy, he's already dead. Moses, uh, Moses died, and so these were clearly written after his death and added to what Moses did write in the book of Deuteronomy. Several Old Testament scholars believe that these verses were added at some point after the exile from Babylon, perhaps even by Ezra. And so in the time between Moses and Ezra, most of the prophets of Israel's history lived during that time period. And yet even with all of these prophets and their amazing ministry, the text says no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses. A prophet who knew the Lord face to face. A prophet who performed signs and wonders. A prophet who demonstrated mighty power and awesome deeds. And yet one thing is obvious through a reading of the Gospels. Jesus did. Jesus fits the bill. And here, Peter affirms that Jesus is not only the Messiah, he's not only the Son of God, but also this promised prophet like Moses that we read about all the way back in Deuteronomy. And the people of Israel were required to listen to him. And everyone who did, like the apostles and like all the first Christians who were Jews, they continued to be a part of God's covenant people. But anyone who didn't would be cut off from their people, as Moses said. And God's desire, which is clearly seen in this passage, is that they would all repent and that they would all turn to God and Jesus the Messiah. This is the reason for the miraculous sign. This is the reason for the healing of the lame beggar. This is the reason for Peter's proclamation of the gospel, for his exhortation to repent and turn to God. And we see one other indicator as well. In verse 26, he says, When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. So what does Peter mean by first to you? And I think we see this well in uh, Paul's words at the, in the first chapter of Romans, Romans 1.16. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And then catch this, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. The gospel, God's salvation, was always intended for all people, the entire human race. We see this all the way back in Genesis 12 when God first called Abraham. But God has not forsook his covenant people to take what was theirs in order to give it to others. Instead, God intended for the nations to share in what the Jews already had. And so when the Messiah came, and with him God's salvation, he came first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. This is how great God's love is. Peter is addressing the very generation that rejected the Messiah. Peter is addressing some of the very people who shouted, crucify him, to Pilate. And yet God's love 
mercy, and faithfulness are demonstrated in that despite their sin, he mobilizes his people to proclaim the gospel, to perform signs, and to exhort these very Jewish people to turn to God in Jesus Christ. And those that did received salvation. They received forgiveness of their sins. They were reconciled with God, and they will be glorified on the day that Christ returns. Friends, this passage today isn't about you, but it certainly has significance for you. Here's some concluding thoughts that we all need to grab hold of as well. God is faithful, even when we are not faithful. There's no reason for us to entertain the lie that God can't or doesn't love us, that he is unable or unwilling to forgive us, that we have fallen too far or sinned too much. This historical account is one of many that demonstrates the faithfulness of God despite our unfaithfulness. Here's the second thing I want you to grab hold of today. God keeps his promises. Before Jesus came, God had promised his arrival for thousands of years. By the time Jesus came, there were numerous Jewish views on the Messiah. The Messiah arrived and they didn't even recognize him, and yet God made good on his promise. And even after they missed his first coming, God used his people to proclaim the Messiah's coming so that people could receive the blessings that God intended. If God has proven that he keeps his promises, then we can trust his promises that are yet to be fulfilled, including the ones mentioned here, that at the appointed time, Jesus will return. And finally, in the same way that the apostles were God's means of proclaiming the gospel at the beginning of the age, we, the body of Christ, remain God's means of proclaiming the gospel in our day. God still wants people to repent and turn to him. And he still expects his church to be his mouthpiece so that others can know the truth and respond. What an honor it is to be entrusted with such an important mission. Thank you.